I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we've just kind of seen the main introduction or the theme to the book. And we're beginning to get into the, the chief argument of what the Apostle Paul wants to communicate to the church at Rome. And while you're turning there, I just want to suggest to you that this, this text is ultimately about the excuses that people make when they face God. It's about the prospect that all of us will ultimately answer to God and what are we going to say then? Far too many people are prepared or prepared, unprepared with bad excuses. I ran across some excuses this week just happened to. Supposedly all true, of course, because everything you find on the internet is true. This man was pulled over and he said, one day I was driving to school and I was late for classes. I was pulled over by a policeman that was obviously working graveyard. And he said to me, I've been waiting for you all day. To which I replied, I got here as fast as I could, officer. Another one was a man was pulled over and the officer looked in the window and the man said, Officer, my wife ran off with a state policeman and when I saw your flashing lights, I didn't stop because I thought you might be a trooper who was trying to bring her back to me. <laughs> Parents are sometimes helpful to their children when they miss school. And here's an excuse. Please excuse Jennifer for missing... School yesterday, we forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch, and when we found it on Monday, we thought it was Sunday. Bob was late for school today because his little brother replaced milk in their cereal with crazy glue, and Bob's mouth stuck together and we needed to melt the glue. Please excuse my son for doing so poorly on the test. The hour he puts aside to do homework and studying every week was lost when the clock sprung forward over the weekend. Here's our, here are a couple of excuses for being late. You may, you may want to use these, in fact. Uh, I have a bit of a slight problem. I got the end of a Q-tip stuck in my ear and have to go to the ER to get it removed. Another, I was dreaming about a basketball game and it went into overtime. <laughs> and then probably the most painful excuses of all are the ones that uh, someone might use to turn somebody down on a date. Uh man asked a woman out on a date and she said, well, the man on television told me to stay tuned so I can't come. Another young lady said, well, uh, um, I'm attending the opening of my garage door. <laughs> and another, well... I go except my chocolate appreciation class meets that night. You see, we all have excuses for things and there's all kinds of reasons that we choose not to take responsibility, but probably the most important thing has to do with our responsibility before God. And certainly none of those, none of those excuses will fly when we answer to God. But, 
how many of us are thinking about excuses or hoping that our excuse will be good enough. And that really is the, that really is the force of the text this morning. And so let's look at Romans chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since, or having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And here it is. So they are without excuse. So that they are without excuse. This is one of the things that I think people struggle with as much as anything when it comes to Christianity in general, I suppose. And that is, what happens to people who don't believe? What happens to people maybe who haven't even heard about Jesus? And this text offers the answer for that. And it's a pretty sobering answer if you ask me. Because it starts out really with the, with the revelation that is new for us. It is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If you're like me, the word wrath is inherently negative to you. You have had bad experiences with people who have been angry or full of wrath. And so, when somebody says the wrath of God, you can't hardly conceive of putting those two words together. Wrath and God and having it be okay. But the wrath of God is a characteristic of God toward sin and unrighteousness. So God has a posture toward what is bad, and you need to know it. Because one of the things that I I think we tend to do is we tend to make God too nice. There's nothing in the Bible that says God is nice. The Bible says God is merciful. The Bible says God is kind. The Bible says that God is loving. But it doesn't say He's nice. But we tend to want to make Him nice. To domesticate Him. To have Him be tame and easy to get along with. But God is not revealed that way. God is revealed as a God who is completely perfect and holy and above all else, hates sin. That's what His wrath is. His wrath is His hatred for sin. You have a sense of this, right? You have a sense of this anyway. Anyway, It does make you even a little bit angry, I suppose, 
when you hear of someone molesting a child, I hope it makes you angry. When you hear of people telling lies or embezzling money or, you know, for most of us, we're self-centered enough that it really bothers when they embezzle against us or lie to us rather than just lying in general. But it is that sin that is ultimately against God as well as against other people that calls out God's anger. And while God is loving, I would even submit it is, it is part of His love that makes Him angry against injustice and unrighteousness and evil. It would not be loving of Him to sort of wink at it and say, oh, it'll be alright, I'm sure. It'll all work out in the end. God doesn't do that. God is wrathful against sin. The most famous sermon ever preached in uh, U.S. soil is the sinners in the hands of an angry God by Jonathan Edwards. It has terrified high school sophomores for hundreds of years. Because it's a masterpiece really of him describing the anger of God against evil. And it is this anger against evil that enables him to be good So the wrath of God, you need to know that God's posture toward sin is, is anger. The wrath of God, it says, is revealed. It doesn't say, so I'm not going to read to you the sinners in the hands of an angry God. I thought about it. But, but his, his thing is that God holds you like a spider on a web over a flame. And one day you're going to drop. So, someday future... You're going to drop in that flame. I want you to notice what it says here. The wrath of God is revealed. This is a present tense verb. It means it's being revealed right now. It's not waiting to be revealed. What is happening right now. And you see it all around the world. You see it in the news every day. You see it in your families. You see it in the people you work with. God's wrath is being dripped out right now in small doses to remind us that one day it will, the dam will break and He will express that wrath finally and in full fury. And so you need to just be awake. The wrath of God is being revealed right now and it's being revealed really for two primary uh, against two primary things. One is ungodliness, which is the, the rebellion against God Himself. This is a vertical, uh, you might say, a vertical offense where people dismiss God, where people find hundreds of things more important than God. When people worship another God, people make themselves into the final authority. And all of that then is an offense against God. And God's wrath is revealed against that. And justifiably so. And His wrath also is revealed against 
unrighteousness. So there is ungodliness that is vertical in nature and there is unrighteousness that is horizontal in nature. In the way that people treat one another. God doesn't take any kind of pleasure in sin. He doesn't like people to hate one another, to be angry with one another, to steal from one another. None of that. None of the offenses that go on and on, gossip against one another, all of that, God's wrath will come. And it is coming. And even right now, it's dripping ever so slowly in ever such measured doses to remind us that that ultimate wrath is coming. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, it's really right here that we begin to get into this, uh, the need for excuses. Because we all have in our mind an image of someone who is completely innocent whom God should completely pardon simply because of how good they are. For some of you, it might be you. For some of you, it might be someone that you know. For most of us, we have this, this distant image of, um, of an innocent savage in some dark jungle somewhere who has never attended church, who has never heard of the Gospel, who has never had the opportunity to respond in faith to Jesus. And so we think, that, oh, that, surely that person has some sort of excuse. Um, I never heard, right? What he says here is that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. What he's suggesting here is that people's rebellion against God and their sin against one another is not an accident. They sin on purpose. They actively suppress the truth. They don't passively become a victim of their circumstances. All of us, in some measure or other, when we sin, either against God or against other people, we are actively suppressing the truth. And it is this suppression of truth, really, that makes us accountable. The wrath of God is revealed because of ungodliness and righteousness toward people who, whether they want to or not, whether they meant to or not, whether they were inclined to or not, they do suppress the truth. Well, what truth? He goes on then to explain what truth. And this is sort of the, this is sort of the baseline of the human condition. He says, for what can be known about God? That's the truth. He's talking about truth that can be known about God. 
what can be known about God is plain to them. In other words, so there, there can be no excuse that says, um, I didn't know. Because what he says is, you did know. You knew enough. You knew enough to suppress it, to reject it. And what can be known about God is plain. You see, this is the this is now beginning to shape the my picture of this what I'm going to call the innocent savage. This imaginary person who lives somewhere else in the world who has never heard about Jesus. And so I assume, because I'm nice and I think God should be nice, that He gets different rules. That something, something unusual happens for somebody else, perhaps. But what this Scripture claims very clearly is that that person doesn't exist. Everybody has knowledge of God that has been made plain. Everybody suppresses some measure of truth in order to sin against other people and to sin against God. I... Again, I process this and I try and think, well, is that, is that really fair? Is that really something that I should worry about? Is that really something that um, God should take offense at? Well, here in Acts chapter 17, it tells us the same kind of thing in, in more of a positive way. Okay, I mean, I, granted, for me to say people suppress the truth and justly deserve God's wrath. That's a pretty negative way to say it. Here's a more positive way to say it. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. On all the face of the earth. In the jungles. In the cities. Okay? In Buddhist countries. In Hindu countries. In Muslim countries. In Christian countries. Okay? That's, God did that. He put them all there having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. So, He didn't even determine where they're going to live and when they're going to live. Why? So that, from India or from Japan or from Lebanon, from Indiana or from Florida or from Oregon, they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward Him. Okay? If they make an effort, what does it say? They'll find Him. Yet, He is not actually far from each one of us. He is findable by my hypothetical innocent savage. And so... If someone responds to the light that they have, to the truth that they have, rather than suppressing it, they'll find Him. They'll be able to feel their way even in the dark and find 
Him because He's not far away. And so, how is God not far away? Right? He seems a lot farther from some people than the others. Than others. Okay. Here, here's what it says in verse 20. So, we're just continuing back in Romans now. For His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. His invisible. So you can see the invisible God. By what God has done, God has revealed Himself. The, the theological term here is general revelation. Okay, the Romans, or Romans. Psalm chapter 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day in a day, utter speech, night in a night, shows forth knowledge. So in the cycles of day and night, in the water cycles, in gravity, in uh, rain, everywhere, you can see the invisible attributes of God. Particularly this invisible attribute, His eternal power. If you look out at night and see the stars and it appears to you infinite and overwhelming, you're right. And you ask yourself, how did that get there? Do you you realize that everybody in the history of the world has wondered those things? It is part of the human predicament to look up and see something immeasurable and overwhelming. It should be... Well, (laughs) it's part of the human predicament in Oregon. And even now, believe it or not, in Southern California, to experience rain. Do you realize the power... Inherent in the rain? That tons and tons, millions of tons of water are transported on nothing. And they go miles and miles. These tons of water. Until circumstances change and they're let out. Not all at once but in tiny little droplets so that they might be absorbed by the ground. I'm telling you, to think about even the water cycle is to realize that there is power evident in creation that is greater than anything that we can imagine. God's eternal power is evident and His divine nature. The fact that there is a God. And that's simply divine nature. That there must be some divine being. And again, I'm not here. I'm not the first person to say this. 
I'm not, I'm not telling you something that has not either been revealed or invented by human beings in the entire history of the human race. The prospect that there is a God is one of the most fundamental things. Even to deny it, even to deny there's a God, is to say it must be part of human existence that there's a God. So, But I don't want to acknowledge it, so I'm going to deny it. You have to even admit it as an assumption simply to deny it. Because His eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived and have been in the jungles, in the cities, on the mountains, in the oceans. Everywhere, human beings have always conceived of some sort of supernatural being and that is part of the human predicament. In other words, going back to verse 19, God has done this. God has shown this to them, it says. God has made it clear. And so, it's not okay to say, I didn't know. Because God has given people enough that if they know, no matter where they live, if they seek Him, even if they grope in the darkness toward Him, He will be found by them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. You can tell about God by the work that He does. You can tell about God by the things that He has accomplished in this world as the Creator. And that is something that everybody has. And so, God's eternal power and His divine nature have been revealed in all of the things that have been made. And I look around and I see all the things that God has made, and I have to ask the question, who made them? And what was He like? He was divine, and He was powerful, and that is sufficient to recognize that I must somehow find Him and submit to Him. And there are people who have made up imitations who have done other things with this knowledge. But without question, it is clearly perceived in the things that are made. And it has been ever since the creation of the world. And so here is the punchline, right? So they are without excuse. I mean, this... This is pretty sobering. Because I think about my supposed innocent savage, right? 
who the Scripture says isn't innocent. He's actively suppressing the truth. He's got enough truth to, to grope after in the darkness if he were to want it. And he doesn't. He doesn't go after it. And so, what does that tell me? He is without excuse. And we have people who find or create or believe all of these other religions. And I think, oh, that they're so sincere. You know, that this isn't really about sincerity. And it is not about religion. It is about the living God revealing Himself and you responding to Him. Not responding to an invented God. Not responding to a, a different belief system. Not responding to what your parents taught you. But responding to the living God who is a Creator of the world. And they're without excuse. And God doesn't apologize for that. God simply states it and says the human condition is such that all of us are accountable to Him. And see, that's when it becomes quite sobering because, yeah, it's one thing if it's an innocent savage or somebody who believes a different religion. It's another thing altogether if it's the people in my neighborhood or the people I work with, the families my kids go to school with. And what he's, what he's saying here is that they're without excuse too. They're not going to get to have a funeral one day and have somebody make something up about how it's going for them. They have enough information to either respond to the living God or not, and they're suppressing it. Making up a new story at a funeral is suppressing the truth. It's not believing the truth. See, I think perhaps the, the most challenging thing, this might be why we want God to be nice. This might be why we want God to have a different set of rules for some people. Is it might not be really for that innocent savage over there. It might be because I'm without excuse. And you're without excuse. And we all know deep down that we can say, <laughs> we can say, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm sorry that I did that wrong thing, but it was really my wife's fault, you know. It was really someone else. There's going to be no excuse for me. And there's no excuse for you either. And I try and think, okay, why is this why is this so hard for us? I mean, it just that God doesn't stutter and he doesn't hesitate. He just says, whoosh, 
They're without excuse. Why is this so hard? And I think part of it is we're not completely convinced that the good news of Jesus is really good enough. That really we should get some kind of a grade on a curve because Jesus isn't maybe going to get us there. We don't really believe that the, it is the power of God and salvation and there is no other power. That this is to everyone who believes and there is no salvation outside of believing in Jesus. Verse 16. And you see, when we go back to the Gospel, we realize that the starting point for the good news is this bad news. And when we try and pretend the news isn't bad, then we somehow cheapen the news that is good. And the beauty of, the beauty of what we have in the Gospel is that, yes, you're without excuse. And you don't need one. Because Jesus pleads His righteousness for you. You have an advocate with the Father who says, let Scott in. See, don't cheapen it by saying, well, it might or might not be good enough, so may or may not be quite as bad as you think. Everyone is accountable for the light that they have. And there is no excuse. There are no different rules. We don't get to believe what we make up to believe. The living God, the Creator of the ends of the earth, has revealed Himself. And He says, He says to to you, He says to me, He says to everyone throughout all the world and all history, take me or leave me. But don't make excuses about your choice. And so I want to, I just want to encourage you this morning. If you, if you have not responded to Jesus in faith, when it says the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that means that you can be saved from the wrath of God and the consequences of your sin without question. And so, please trust the Gospel. Please don't try and find a different way or make an excuse. Because there isn't one. Not for people far away and not for you. And so, I appeal to you to please, please trust in Jesus as your Savior. And for those of you that do, I want to appeal to you with the soberness of of this text to say, don't be bashful. Don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed about the good news. You have good news that actually saves people from the wrath of God and the consequences of their sin. 
And if you love them, you'll be one that actually shares that with them. And so as you walk your neighborhood and as you go to the water cooler or have lunch tomorrow, I want you to realize, you know, that person doesn't have an excuse and neither does that one. No, that, that person has an excuse. It's just not good. That one doesn't have an excuse either. And love them enough to get into a relationship with them where you can share the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners from the wrath of God. Will you pray with me?